Good evening, everyone, and thanking you. Thank you for coming to the event this evening, which is an Institute of Global Affairs public lecture. So I have the honor of welcoming you on behalf of the LSE. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director, and on behalf of the Institute of Global Affairs, of which I'm not the director. The director is Eric Bergloff in the front row. We are delighted to have with us tonight Baroness Valerie Amos, a very distinguished figure known to all of you, but perhaps in some cases only for part of her very distinguished career. Valerie is now the director of SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, our close neighbor in the University of London. She joined SOAS in September 2015. For the five years before that, from 2010, she served as the Undersecretary General of the United Nations for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief. Emergency Relief Coordination is one of the pressing issues in the world. It was very much during her tenure one in which the task of coordination was front and center, but it's an issue that is well on our agenda today. She served in a number of roles in the public sector, including in local government and as chief executive of the Equal Opportunities Commission. She was an advisor (coughs) to the Mandela government in South Africa on leadership, change, management, and strategy issues between 1994 and 1998. She was appointed a labor life peer in 1997 and became a member of government in 1998. (coughs) She was a foreign office minister, secretary of state for international development, leader of the House of Lords, and Lord President of the Council. She also served as a UK High Commissioner to Australia. Now, not only because I'm coughing and unable to speak, I think we should turn our attention to Valerie Amos speaking on the global refugee crisis. Thank you. Uh, Good evening, everyone, and Craig, thank you very much indeed for that uh, kind introduction. You made me feel incredibly old mentioning um, all those things and uh, some of the dates when I did them. Uh, My thanks also to to Eric, to uh, Eric Berkloff from the Institute of uh, Global Affairs. Uh, I left the United Nations nine months ago, and I had seen day in, day out, the commitment, tenacity, and bravery of humanitarian workers around the world as they struggled to cope with a significant rise in the number of people requiring humanitarian assistance. And I also witnessed firsthand the strength, courage, and bravery of people around the world living in the most appalling and sometimes inhumane conditions. I left proud of what we'd been able to achieve with growing needs and limited resources but I was also angry and frustrated. Partly because I saw the way in which narrow political interests at times dominated the political agenda in the United Nations and other multilateral organizations to the detriment of those in need. But also because I saw the efforts to undermine the tenets of the UN Charter by undermining the long-term commitment to human rights the attempts to politicize the rights of civilians to protection and humanitarian aid. One very good example uh, was the Syrian government, uh, which constantly 
used aid and access to food as a weapon of war. And in fact, we had to get a Security Council uh, resolution to enable us uh, to reach people in need. And I became obsessed by the lack of accountability. When I started, I had no idea that accountability would be one of the things that would end up right at the top of my agenda. We have a body of international law which, over time, has given us the means to deal with many of the challenges arising from conflict. Even war has rules. But I saw them constantly broken, ignored. And what I've seen from the prism of the European Union since I've returned in the last few months has not diminished that anger or frustration. Why? Partly because of the way in which the current refugee crisis is being debated and discussed in some of the richest countries in the world, and also because of what I see as a lack of global leadership. With few exceptions, there is no consistent leadership with politicians helping people to understand the complexities of the situation we face. So tonight, what I hope to do is shine a spotlight on some of those challenges and uh, offer I hope, a different way to think about those challenges and some of the possible solutions. There is no doubt that we live in a time of unprecedented global challenges, a time when we need good global governance and our multilateral system more than ever. But it's also a very different world to that in which those multilateral institutions, including the United Nations and European Union, were formed. With changing power dynamics, technological advances, real-time communications, the growth of social media, all have challenged a system which is based on countries and their representatives talking to each other when it is now their people who are talking and sharing information across countries and continents. People who are directly comparing and questioning national policy and practice. People who get their information from a variety of sources and don't depend on governments or even opinion formers, to interpret that in information for them. The possibilities are endless, and against that backdrop, we have seen states emphasizing their national sovereignty as a way of eluding global scrutiny. Even as our world has become more interconnected through trade, for example, travel, and global communication, it has also become more fragmented and in some cases, more individual and inward-looking. Are we less tolerant of others? I don't know, but sometimes it feels like it. Feels as if we're closing down the space for debate and challenge, that we are less prepared to listen, that the reality of a global threat, that of a global world is a threat as well as an opportunity. And that's real because people have lost jobs, uh, they feel the outside world crowding in to their domestic space. But it also feels sometimes as if we feel more and think less, that emotion trumps rationality. And the rise of anti-immigration and far-right policies in many countries in Europe has fueled a shift in the political domestic debate to one of overwhelming negativity. 
The most recent example of this is what has happened in Germany with Angela Merkel's support last year to refugees. So many have now labelled it as a significant political error. What so many of us saw as the right thing to do is now being talked about as contributing to a weakening of her authority and power. Just today, the Premier of the State of Bavaria called her handling of the refugee crisis a rule of injustice. Let me quote in full. He said, we don't currently have a state of law and order. It is a rule of injustice. Now, those of you who know anything about Germany will know that this is a very loaded term and is usually used to describe dictatorships or oppressive regimes. And Donald Trump described Chancellor Merkel's policies as, and I quote, a tragic mistake. Her approval ratings have fallen, and she's also been criticized within her own ruling coalition for her open door and migrant policy. She's been given a very clear political message. But there is also a global agenda which people care about and have challenged their leaders to address. And that agenda is, mu is as much about tackling poverty and inequality, climate change, justice and rights, as it is about safety and security. It's said that the first responsibility of a government is to ensure the safety and security of its citizens. And if a government fails at that, it fails at everything. So leaders are exercised about how to deliver global peace and security and tackle terrorism. Much of the current public debate, of course, is about ISIS and its impact across the Middle East. But the situation in northern Nigeria, Mali, and the countries of the Sahel, Libya, Afghanistan, are all a cause of concern. And for those of us living in, for example, the United Kingdom and France, there are the questions we can no longer run away from. Questions about the reality of our plurality and diversity. What constitutes our national identity? Who is an insider and who an outsider? Who do we embrace and who do we reject? And how have we managed to create societies in which we have so alienated some of our young people they reject us and want to destroy us? As someone who came to this country aged nine, I suppose in today's parlance I would be called an economic migrant, I rapidly lost my Guyanese accent and with the tremendous support of friends and family was taught how to negotiate the United Kingdom. I look at the strides we have made but also the continuing and at times covert and overt racism and why we haven't managed to do more. The reality of underachievement and lack of aspiration is alive and well in some of our communities, and particularly in our minority ethnic communities. Here in the United Kingdom, we sought to deal with the reality of that security agenda through one focused on preventing the grasp of radicalism and tackling extremism. But that agenda is being rolled out against the backdrop of political debate, which has focused exclusively on the Muslim community, 
with the results that communities have become more fractured, relationships have become more strained, as people feel and indeed are attacked. Years of work to promote and build community cohesion stripped away. People see not for the broad contribution they make to society as a whole, but through the narrow prism of difference. Seen as a threat to the values which are at the heart of our society, rather than contributing to them. Seen through a narrow security lens. And linked to that broad security agenda is the fallout from it and from protracted crises around the world. The bloody conflict in Syria, which has entered its fifth year. Iraq, Palestine, Yemen, Democratic Republic of the Congo, South Sudan, Central African Republic, the list goes on. Few of the crises have been resolved and most still generate new displacement. In 2014, only 126,800 refugees were able to return to their home countries, the lowest number in 31 years. And the average time someone is now displaced is a staggering 17 years. <coughs> and I saw that myself the first time I went to Sudan and went to Darfur and saw young people who had known nothing of life outside of a refugee camp. They'd been born there, they grew up there, all their schooling was there. UNHCR reports that there are 59.9 million people forcibly displaced around the world. That's almost the population of the United Kingdom. In 2014 alone, 13.9 million people became newly displaced, four times the number of the previous year. Globally, one in every 122 of us is now either a refugee, internally displaced, or seeking asylum. If this were the population of a country, it would be the world's 24th largest. 19.5 million of that 59 million are refugees, and 38.2 million of them are people who have been forcibly uprooted and displaced in their own countries. Turkey is the country which hosts the largest number of refugees. The official figure is 1.59 million, but the estimates are much higher as not everyone registers. People cross a border, they try to find a job, they're very often in an urban environment, they try to fit in. Syria is the top source country of refugees overtaking Afghanistan, which was the top source country for more than 30 years. Almost one out of every four refugees is Syrian, with 95% of them, and I repeat, 95% of them located in neighboring countries. They're not in the European Union. From the far-flung northwest corner of Europe or in the United States, it was, for a long time, easy to see re refugee flows as one way. And there's been a sometimes deliberate confusion of the terminology, with no distinction made between refugee flows and the ongoing migration, which is part and parcel of Norman life. For example, there are 5.5 million British nationals who live abroad permanently. 
There are communities of more than 1,000 Britons in more than 100 countries. And in 2006, the UK received about £4.5 billion in remittances from abroad. We never talk about that. So whether flows of refugees are coming into Lesbos from Syria, into Italy from Libya, or into the port terminal of Marseille from the Maghreb, it all seemed like a long way from us, a one-way flow. After all, we have a channel which people have to cross. But all that has changed. The confluence of the discussions on Britain's continued membership of the European Union against the backdrop of a fragmented EU response to increased refugee flows from Syria and elsewhere in the world has been coupled in the political rhetoric with the recent terrorist attacks in France and elsewhere. We have seen some European Union countries, all of them UN member states, and which through membership of the EU have signed up to the principle of free movement, closing their borders. Hungary is building a border fence. Bulgaria has built one. The British government paid for improved fencing around the Channel Tunnel. We are fortressing Europe. I titled this lecture, The Global Refugee Crisis, A Challenge to Our Common Humanity, because I've been appalled at the way this crisis is being discussed and debated on our continent. Over 50% of refugees are children. Displacement within and from Syria is a tragedy with a child's face, a woman's face. Of the more than four million Syrians who have fled their country, women and children make up three quarters of the total. At what point do we stop and ask ourselves what we would do if we faced similar circumstances? I've met so many people forced to flee, worried about family, community, women desperate to protect their daughters, see their children educated. They're like you and me. They want similar things. And the tragic thing is that their expectations are so low. I remember the first time I went to a refugee camp in Turkey. And a group of women came up to me. They were afraid. They were angry. They were defiant. All at the same time. And the big question they had for me was why had the world abandoned them? Why had their stories disappeared? Why was no one thinking about them? It's the human story behind the statistics that matter. We need to stand up to our leaders and say that the answer to increased refugee flows in the 21st century is not a bigger war. History suggests that walls don't keep people out for long anyway. We need a leadership that helps people to understand some of the reasons that the world is in the state that it's in, even if we don't have the solutions to all the challenges. A leadership that is not afraid to take tough political decisions and challenge the narrow nationalism which has crept into and is now a standard part of political discourse, not just here in the UK, but elsewhere in the world. The answer is not demonization of people, their countries, their communities, their religion and culture. I firmly believe that the answer lies 
in greater openness and more active political engagement. When are we going to acknowledge that it's a relatively small proportion of refugees that we take in Europe compared to our relative wealth, and that it's two countries, Germany and Sweden, that take the majority? It is neighboring countries that bear the brunt of any refugee crisis. For Syria, it's Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, and Iraq. Where they can, as has been the case with Lebanon, people go back and forth, and today's hosts can turn into tomorrow's, into tomorrow's refugees and vice versa. Witness the flows from Iraq in the aftermath of the war uh, in Syria uh, and the way they have moved back again. Or looking further afield, flows from South Sudan back to Sudan following the eruption of violence in December 2014. Germany may have received 1.1 million refugees last year, but it has a population of 80 million. Compare that to Lebanon, a country 23 times smaller than the UK with a population of 5.9 million people. 1.4 million of that 1.9 are Syrian. And there are half a million Palestinian refugees as well. Think about the impact of that on a country's economy, its health and education systems. Lebanon is a country which has survived on the basis of a delicate political balancing act, incorporating groups with different interests and of different religions. They've been without a president since May 2014. And we are looking to them, a small and vulnerable country, to continue to absorb thousands of refugees per year. And we expect the same of Jordan, another country juggling its domestic, regional and global responsibilities and which hosts the largest number of Palestinian refugees. The UK government's commitment is to resettle 20,000 refugees over the next five years. I echo the sentiments of David Miliband, who's the IRC president and former UK Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, who said, and I quote, 4,000 a year here? I always say to people, if it was 25,000 a year, that would be 40 people per parliamentary constituency. So what are the policy solutions being pushed? They're myriad and disconnected. First, at the global level, I have watched for over four years the inability to find a political solution to the Syria crisis. Countries like the United States, the United Kingdom and France, three permanent members of the Security Council, totally misread the situation in Syria. They thought it was going to be another Arab Spring, another Egypt, that Assad would fall. What we now have is a recognition that Assad must be part of any transition to a secure and stable Syria, four years on, because you can't get yourself into a negotiating uh, position which you uh, cannot move from, and that's what happened at the beginning. We expect a lot of diplomacy, but at best it's about finding imperfect and ingenious ways to stop people killing each other. Those wanting to end the conflict have to work harder than those who want it to continue. 
As the former British ambassador to Lebanon said, and I quote, the world's conscience should not be subcontracted to a divided UN Security Council or at the mercy of a Russian veto. We have all watched Syria slide into turmoil and despair. Solutions evading us month by month, year on year. The figures are staggering. 13.5 million people in need of humanitarian assistance inside the country. As I said earlier, over 4 million of them in besieged and hard to access areas and 4.6 million of them who've left the country. 6.6 million internally uh, displaced. Life expectancy has shortened by almost 13 years, 13 years since the crisis began. And the Syrian economy has contracted by an estimated 40% since 2011. By the end of 2013, an estimated three in four Syrians were living in poverty. This is a country that used to be designated as middle income. These figures are a scandal. And the worst of it is, we watched it happen. So a renewed push for ceasefires and a political solution have to be at the heart of any attempt to resolve the Syria uh, conflict. Put simply, the fighting must stop. Then we have to be clear about what we're talking about. As Dr. Tanya Kaiser, I'm pleased to say a senior lecturer at SOAS has made clear, there is no single refugee experience. But there are patterns in the factors which contribute to forced migration. Refugees are people who have been forced to flee. This is not a choice that people are making. And the experience is also gendered. Yes, more men than women make the longer, dangerous intercontinental journey. But that is also changing. But it's usually the women who go first to neighboring countries in hopes of a quick return. What a gendered analysis of forced migration shows us is the way the multiple pressures on men and women are applied differently and have different consequences. For example, women fearing for their daughters and marrying them off early. Witness the heartbreak of a woman who told an aid agency uh, in Zartary camp, and this is what she said. I was married when I was 15 years and had two abortions. I was not able to think clear and did not know if it was my fault. I'm 19 now, the nine-month-old baby. I had a very hard delivery. I still feel I'm too young to be a mother. We must also deal with the traffickers. There are plenty of people making a living from the movement of people and their misery. People make money from war and conflict. They make money from those forced to flee. That has to stop. And perhaps it would if some of the recommendations that were made in a Center for European Policy Studies brief of September 2015 were put into place. The authors make a number of recommendations to the European Union on the practical steps which could be taken to deal justly and fairly with refugees. Their recommendations are as follows. First, 
that the European Union, and not merely a few member states, need to acknowledge that the Dublin system, and that's uh, the convention under which uh, it's determined which member state is responsible to examine an application for asylum seekers, uh, those seeking international protection, that there needs to be acknowledgement that that system does not work and a new approach is urgently needed. Secondly, that we need to find alternative tools for refugees to arrive safely in the European Union without risking their lives in unseaworthy boats and paying their life savings to smugglers. This requires rethinking the visa requirements and carrier sanctions that ensure safe arrivals. Refugees, along with their possessions and resources, could then make safe, legal journeys and arrive anywhere within the European Union. Third, that we need to ensure that member states' first reception obligations are fulfilled so that refugees are not forced to move to a second or third member state to be able to live in dignity while their asylum applications are processed. Fourth, to exclude coercion from all EU mechanisms to allocate asylum seekers to member states. Voluntary mechanisms are the only ones that will work. Fifth, to agree on a distribution key to share reception of re refugees and determination of their claims in a way that is fair to the refugees and respects their preferences and fair to member states by ensuring they all play a full part in hosting refugees. And finally, in the longer term, establish an EU migration, asylum and protection agency to take responsibility for ensuring coherent and consistent determination of asylum claims across the EU. And let's also remember the history, culture and diversity of the countries and regions affected by conflict. Doing that will help to inform a more nuanced policy making. For example, we can't understand what's happening in Yemen without understanding Yemen's history, its relationship with Saudi Arabia, its relationship with Iran, its role as a transit country for migrants from East Africa. And missing from all the discussion is the reality of migrants actually helping each other. It's not about dependence. Refugees do everything in their power to avoid that. It's about protection and independence. And we need to look again, I think, at the Refugee Convention. What aspects of it are out of date? Can we move beyond the three tenets of durable solutions, which are resettlement, voluntary repatriation, local reintegration? How creative can we be in finding different solutions? And given the nature of the current public discourse on refugees, I think that there is a moral and ethical dimension to this issue which must come to the fore. I've seen, for example, the advocacy work being undertaken by SOAS students through the SOAS Detainee Support Initiative, which is student-led. SOAS students work with people in and outside immigration detainee centers with the aim of reducing isolation and offering support to people. This is their way of working to challenge the current discourse, and there are many other examples. And Cathy Lang's book, The Huddled Masses, Immigration and Inequality, 
shows the need to rethink the relationship between immigration and inequality, and particularly the need to stop pitting poor immigrants against poor workers at the expense of both groups. Neither group benefits from that, and the whole society loses. Effective challenging of that public discourse requires good data, analysis, and challenging conventional approaches. That's where universities become critical with their critical thinking and scholarly inquiry. I want to end with a quotation, if I may. Hannah Arendt, in her paper, We Refugees, says this about being a refugee. We wanted to rebuild our lives. That was all. In order to rebuild one's life, one has to be strong and an optimist. So we are very optimistic. Our optimism, indeed, is admirable, even if we say so ourselves. We lost our home, which means the familiarity of daily life. We lost our occupation, which means we lost the confidence that we are of some use in the world. We lost our language, which means the naturalness of reactions, the simplicity of gestures, the unaffected expression of feelings. What more can I say? She said it all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Baroness Amos, for... Got to call me Valerie. I can't deal with her. Can I just call you Valerie? Good, since we're friends. Okay, you know, we're overcompensating in public here. So, Valerie, thank you for remarks that were um, informative, moving, challenging, and I hope this LSE audience has questions to bring forward the discussion, and um, I think I'll take them in groups of two or three at a time and let you answer. The gentleman in the pink shirt there, the first, the man in the back will be the next. Hi, thank you very much. So my question is, um, what do you think about a libertarian approach in terms of creating more of an open border society without giving welfare, uh, without a welfare state for immigrants and without any political rights, meaning voting rights? Wouldn't that be uh, something more desirable to create uh, a larger system of, of uh, open border society? Thank you. Okay, gentlemen in the back, we'll take three at a time here. Yeah, um, I'm probably a little bit cynical. Um, I, I built refugee centres in Bosnia, Herzegovina, during the civil war there, housed 25,000 refugees uh, with British government funding of three million pounds. Uh, saw how thin the veneer of civilization is and how easy it is ripped asunder. Um, my, own, my own view is that there is no political consensus or willingness of the populations of the wider European Union to accept numbers greater than we saw last summer, I suspect, in fact, the reality is anybody increasing refugee numbers uh, is going to find no way of getting re-elected. So there's a, there's a major issue there of realism. My suggestion would be Paul Romer from Harvard has suggested the establishment of charter cities. They could be established within safe UN havens within the country or in the neighboring countries where the rule of law is established by the UN with um, 
police and judicial uh, structures based on, for example, Hong Kong would be a good example. That's how Shenzhen got going. It's effectively a charter city. Charter cities would give people the ability to rebuild their lives, to set down roots in rough proximity to the areas where they came from. And would you like to comment on that as a practical suggestion to move the agenda forward? Okay, and there was a third person just here in the blue jacket, and then I'll take the group. Yes, I read recently that the, the Canadian approach to this situation is that uh, the Canadian government will take 25,000, uh, and they'll also allow 25, an additional 25,000, this is over a 12-month period, 25,000 if they are privately sponsored. So that's a total of 50,000 per year, but with the proviso that only um, women and children, no single males. And I, and when I, when I realize, when I when I think back on the Kinder Kinder transport, which this country undertook before, just at the outbreak of the Second World War, that too was based upon individual sponsorship. So I think. Um, as the gentleman just spoke here, anything has to be done with the approval, with the mandate of, uh, of, of the consensus of the um, indigenous population. Okay. All right. um, you won't be surprised to hear that um, I'm not in favor of an approach uh, which doesn't give people rights um, and uh, where uh, as it were, there's no there's no flaw uh, to support people if they if they have nothing else. Um, I absolutely agree that if that if you look at the political landscape, um, that um, it is very hard to see how everyone would be uh, re-elected who, for example, took a different approach. But I don't I don't accept a premise that says. Um, uh, the, the majority of people uh, may not be, be re-elected. I mean, I hope that one of the threads in what I said uh, is that I think one of the reasons for that is because the, the, the quality of the leadership on this issue, um, and I think it's, it, it's, it's global, this is global. I mean, if you, if you take you know, Angela Merkel out of uh, uh, the equation, you, you pretty much... Um, uh, and the new uh, uh, Canadian uh, Prime Minister, you pretty much have a, a real lack of political will and leadership in, leading, uh, in dealing with these issues. So we can't just say people won't be uh, re-elected. I mean, the reality is that, that there has been very little attempt, actually, to, to help people to engage in and, and understand these issues. And it's... It's, it's highly contradictory, and I completely accept that. You know, at the same time, you can have people saying, you know, not in my backyard, where they are giving, you know, huge numbers, uh, huge amounts of money to charities and, um, uh, uh, and so on to actually help with, uh, with Syrian refugees. And I've, I've met a lot of people who will say, this is not an issue I know anything about, but who are moved uh, because they, as it were, put themselves in the shoes um, uh, uh, of those people. And I really don't think that we should give up. I really don't think that, that um, and this is not to say that we shouldn't be looking at all kinds of different models, 
But I think the idea of creating, as it were, um, almost uh, ghettos of uh, uh, refugees, and I know that's not quite what you were were saying, because essentially you were saying, you know, cities in which people are able to function, they're able to have jobs, and, and so on and so forth. But you're, you're still starting off by saying, there's a whole bunch of people that we are going to put in this, in this one, one place. Um, so I think, I think all of these ideas we have to look at and examine, but my, my worry is that they also become, as it were, bastardized, um, because because we don't do anything about the wider, uh, uh, to challenge the wider political discourse. And we, ha we absolutely have to do that. And I think we have to force, uh, we have to force our politicians. And, you know, this is not, a, uh, I'm not making a party political point, um, because, because everyone is shifting uh, in, in, uh, in that uh, direction. Um, I do think, uh, I do think the, the importance of making sure uh, if you do look at, uh, uh, at, at doing this kind of thing, uh, rule of law, making sure that uh, you know, the United Nations are involved. I mean, all of that is, is absolutely critical. Um, and again, with, uh, with Canada, um, yes, um, there are thousands of people who have um, signed up to the scheme in, in Canada in terms of uh, uh, private uh, sponsorship, and my understanding is that it's worked very well. Uh, but it is it is relatively um, early days in, in relation to that. Okay. Let's go up in the balcony. There's a gentleman here on this side. And then on the one nearest the aisle there. Be second. Yeah. Thanks, Valerie. Uh, up here. Oh. Um, there's a perception uh, that the kind of uh, stresses and strains and difficulties of uh, integration uh, that come with kind of a new uh, refugee or migrant group in this society often fall disproportionately on, uh, say, the working classes, uh, and that wealthier people often kind of inculcated from any of those changes because of the areas that they live in, uh, etc. And it's, I think, often by drawing on that that populist politicians can kind of present themselves as being, you know, on the side of a lot of people on the side of the working classes by resisting. Uh, any refugee flows? Do you think there's um, any? Uh, do you think there's truth in that? And uh, and if so, kind of what are the the best ways uh, to deal with that? So you mentioned um, that a lot of work was being done on the European Union level. Um, our experience in Sweden is very often that the efforts we put to bring the European Union together to get any kind of meaningful help often is a waste of resources because of obstructive countries both in the east but also on this island. Um, and I was wondering therefore if you think in the few countries where there is a political capital to actually do something meaningful about this, do you think that it is better to invest that in trying to get minor change that happens all over the European Union or to try to focus on working unilaterally to using the sovereignty as a tool rather than the Union? And there is a woman in the row just in front of him in a white shirt. Um. How and why do you see Assad as being uh, part of the solution to the refugee crisis and uh, as part of the political uh, 
you know, part of the transitional government if he is responsible for most civilian deaths and displacements inside Syria. Surely if he's the primary perpetrator of um, these deaths and displacements, then he cannot be part of a solution. Over to you. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right that um, uh, if you look at where uh, refugees uh, go, they do tend to go, they tend to go, they do tend to end up, I mean, I saw this, I've, I've seen this in Lebanon, Jordan, uh, elsewhere, they do tend to go uh, to parts of, uh, uh, they end up in the poorer neighborhoods, um, which puts a huge amount of stress and strain um, on uh, services, uh, places where uh, there tends to be higher unemployment and so on and so forth. So you really need to, you need to be investing in uh, those communities. And one of the things that I saw when I was at the United Nations was that people in uh, uh, what you called host communities would very often uh, feel extremely left out and concerned because their perception was that refugees were getting a better deal than they were. Um, uh, because they were getting access uh, to resources, they were being looked after. Uh, these were people who you know, were not necessarily being looked after by their own uh, uh, government, and it set up um, immediate tensions. Even in, in areas and neighborhoods where people were very welcoming, very quickly um, you created a very uh, uh, tense and difficult situation. So you have, to deal with, you have to deal with both communities, and you also have to work to help the communities... Uh, uh, to, live with, uh, to live with each other. You can't just assume that it's going to, to work out. Um, and uh, one of the things uh, that I think that uh, Cathy Lang points to in the work that she's been doing on this in uh, developed countries is the way that actually, you know, very poor people in poor communities who uh, perhaps are exploited in their work um, are then pitted against um, uh, 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 refugees and uh, immigrant uh, communities. So this is, there's a whole um, area that I think uh, we need to uh, uh, investigate and look at more carefully. Um, but it is about making sure that there is uh, investment that actually helps, which has uh, a knock-on impact. It doesn't just support the refugees, it also supports uh, the communities in which they find themselves. Um, I don't think it's either or. Uh, do you just work um, uh, unilaterally or, or, or do you try to use um, uh, political capital to try to bring about change in the, the EU? I think, you have to do, uh, I think you have to do both. You know, a country like uh, uh, Sweden um, has led the way on these issues for a very, very long period of time. Um, uh, uh, but facing uh, a bit of a backlash now. But... Uh, so it's very important for you know, the lessons that, that we, we can continue to learn from Sweden, that we continue to, to learn those. But I think Sweden has also got to use the fact that you know, it is a leader uh, in this field to try and change the, EU, the way the EU works. And the, uh, you know, the recommendations that I, uh, I read out from the, uh, uh, the, 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 the policy paper uh, on this, I think, would, would go some way uh, to bringing about um, that change. And, and the final question about um, Assad, and I deliberately phrased it um, in that way uh, uh, to pro provoke your kind of question. 
Um, and you'll recall that I, 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 I put around it the whole thing about diplomacy, and the diplomacy is imperfect um, at, its, at, its very, uh, at its very best. Um, and, you know, the world is littered with examples of people who, you know, should rightfully be in jail um, uh, and are not um, because a, a, a political solution has been found to uh, a problem uh, to enable the fighting to stop. The point that, um, uh, and you've given me an opportunity to make the point, the point I'm trying to make is that if your starting point is wrong, so what I saw um, four or five years ago was because there was a misreading of the power of the state in Syria and the hold that the Assad government has uh, over that state. So even now, four or five years on, where the whole north of the country um, effectively is in the hands of uh, ISIS. Uh, the Syrian government is still operating as a government. They're still recognized by uh, uh, the United Nations, despite uh, the fact that you know, it took years before they, they gave way and uh, enabled uh, aid, for example, to come in <coughs> across borders that they didn't control. Despite the, the, the evidence of uh, the way that they have used siege and denial of food as a, a weapon of war. They still control a state apparatus. And in a situation like that, your starting point cannot be Assad must go if you don't have, as it were, the, the, the powerful countries that need to uh, have agreed on that. So you don't have a Security Council that agrees on that. The five permanent members of the Security Council do not. You have um, Iran, which is extremely uh, active in Syria. You have uh, Russia, which uh, from the very start and uh, uh, is a permanent member of the Security Council, uh, which has had a different uh, position uh, and have said from the beginning that, you know, that their job is not to, as it were, keep Assad in power, but, they, uh, but, uh, but that there has to be you know, a negotiated way out of this. So it is against that backdrop that you now have the same countries that said at the beginning Assad must go have now said that there has to be, you know, for, the, for the fighting to stop, that political transition and debate and discussion has to involve the Assad regime. Now, what that means in practice, none of us really knows. And I think nobody actually feels that he should be there after any kind of transition, but it's about a reality of diplomacy. Okay. Let's go to the woman with the blue scarf, and we'll go to the man in the black in the back with the glasses and the man next to him, both the two people together. Thank you very much for uh, this talk. Uh, I wanted to, to have some more of your comments on one of the recommendations you provided us with. Um, you talked about uh, creating a fair distribution key for, uh, for sharing the responsibility for reception and, uh, and evaluation of asylum claims within Europe. But you also said that it has to be based on voluntary participation by the asylum seekers themselves. 
I think we've seen over the last few years how difficult it is to combine those two things. We've had projects trying to move refugees from Malta to other European states, and now with the relocation scheme from Italy and Greece. It is very hard to combine those two, just those two things. Do you think that is a realistic aim? And if we have to make a choice, which one is more important? Okay. Then the two gentlemen sitting next to Yeah, hi. Um, there's a lot of talk about the symptoms and, and not the cause. Um, didn't the EU learn any lessons from um, the war in Yugoslavia when they stood and watched for four or five years before they did something? And it was actually the Americans that, that did something. But... Um, as someone uh, from Ireland, we had a conflict in Northern Ireland, and we didn't, we didn't say to one group, um, you can't come to the table. Everybody was welcome to come to the table, and those who didn't, you just carried on without them. So, as regards Syria, where is the peacemakers? Why, why weren't they getting in there six months after the conflict started, instead of waiting and waiting and waiting? Like... I mean, surely the EU can do a lot better than this. Do we have to wait? Like, the UK and, and the French kind of wait for the Americans before they get a nod from the Americans. But look, there's lots of other countries. Why aren't they going in there? Why isn't Ban Ki-moon going in there with a team from early on and stop, just stop the fighting? And, you know, and then, and then you will stop the refugee crisis in Syria anyway. Pass the microphone next, yeah. Uh, when you visited uh, Darfur, you said that uh, young people have nothing uh, outside the refugee camps. Yet again, uh, just uh, uh, for two weeks up to now, the alien bombardment from Sudan government against civilian people in Darfur, Jabarwana, is still going on, and it produces about uh, 40,000 uh, refugees this is just in, uh, in, uh, in two weeks. Uh, genocide uh, uh, should be never again, and, and, and it should be it's remembered, but shouldn't be repeated. Uh, it was repeated uh, in Rwanda, and also it's still ongoing now uh, in Darfur. Uh, my question is, uh, the Sudan government, for example, using sovereignty as a shield to deny uh, food access and to deny protections to the civilians in Darfur and to deny uh, UNAMED also to go and to protect civilians uh, in Darfur. How can sovereignty could be related with responsibility, with accountability, and also uh, in what basis responsibility to protect can be actionalized to protect civilians? Yeah. Um, on the issue of, of voluntary participation and, and, and the fair distribution key, uh, there's also an element of this which is, which is problematic, which is that you know, countries then deli also deliberately say things. <clears throat> We've seen leaders deliberately say things uh, so that uh, uh, refugees actually won't say that they want to go to a particular country. Um, and, and we've seen that happening with uh, increasing uh, frequency um, if I had to choose, you know, I would have to say voluntary participation because it, it's really important, I think, uh, for people to be able to feel uh, uh, confident um, uh, in terms of where they're going. But again, I don't think, um, uh, I don't think we should give up on this. I, I do think that 
we should be calling uh, we should be calling out those countries in a much uh, uh, more robust way uh, that put in place policies and, and, and practices. I mean, when you see what's uh, happening in, in in Hungary, for example, I mean, these are countries that have signed up to uh, the European Union, and in doing so, have signed up. Uh, to the rights, um, the values of the European Union. You go through a whole accession uh, process. And then to get to this point and for this not to be uh, challenged more robustly in the context of the European Union, I find uh, as a major, major uh, problem. And I see it as a major problem within the context of the United Nations as well, that you know, there is a United Nations Charter. Um, and if you, if you read that, that charter and as it were, the vision of the founders of uh, uh, the United Nations, it is as applicable today as it was then. But, uh, and this in a way uh, links to the final question, but those issues around ac accountability and uh, responsibility, because it is a multilateral organization, every single country uh, theoretically has you know, the same voice, uh, the same rights, we know that they don't because of, uh, of the way uh, power is distributed, but also because of uh, uh, the Security Council. <coughs> no, the fact is that if we don't pay more attention to accountability, if we don't pay more attention uh, to responsibility, if countries are not held uh, accountable, we will get more um, of what we're seeing uh, now. Um, on the issue of um, haven't we learned the lessons from uh, Yugoslavia, we've not learned the lessons from Yugoslavia. We've not learned uh, uh, the lessons from uh, uh, Rwanda and uh, elsewhere. We say each time, uh, never again, and it happens again. Um, there, I, I think there are peacemakers. I think there are people in uh, Syria uh, who are very active. One of the things that I, very, I think is very noticeable at each time that they try to get, to get these uh, peace negotiations going uh, for Syria is that uh, uh, women are not very present. Uh, in the formal negotiations, although there are a lot of uh, women who are very uh, uh, active uh, in this, so that tells me that there is uh, a major problem there. Um, with respect to uh, the United Nations, I mean, we are now on our third uh, envoy, a UN uh, envoy for, for Syria. Um, the first was uh, Kofi Annan. Uh, uh, the second was uh, Lakdar uh, Brahimi. Um, we now have Stefan uh, Dimistura. Um, uh, you, you might recall uh, the, uh, when uh, Kofi Annan resigned, um, and indeed when Lakdar uh, Brahimi resigned, they, they resigned uh, clearly extremely frustrated uh, because of their inability to make uh, progress and get the right people uh, around uh, the table. And that means that there has to be a degree of coercion in all of this. And as long as you have, uh, as long as, in my view... You don't have a United States, uh, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Turkey all pointing in the same direction. We are not going to make substantive progress uh, on uh, Syria. Um, uh, and just on uh, this final question on, on, on Sudan, I mean, again, uh, I do think that this issue of uh, accountability and responsibility has to be uh, right at the top of the agenda. It's not just Sudan. We're seeing the same thing happening in, um, in South Sudan as well. And an aggressive use of state sovereignty by so many countries um, around the world as a way 
of continuing to behave with total impunity. Okay, great. Let's go over here. Gentleman in the black sweater there. Thanks for the uh, for the lecture. By the way, it was <clears throat> really interesting. Um, we hear a lot of figures sort of thrown about amongst politicians and political pundits on how many refugees we think we should be taking in. Um, I think it's quite perverse to talk about exact figures of how many people, but it is necessary in order to have a unified opposition to our current government's policy. I think people like Yvette Cooper and, and Keir Starmer and people who are sort of on the op- opposition who are responsible for the refugee crisis have talked about between 60 and 80,000. I think it's kind of the average that people talk about. I personally think that's too low. It's quite a simple question with a very difficult answer. How many do you think is reasonable for us to be taking in um, in order to uh, set a good example to the rest of the, uh, to the, rest of the world? It's a hard question for you, but easy for me, you reckon. <laughs> I think he, he reckons he knows he puts you on the spot. <laughs> Let's go in the front row there with a moment in black. I can actually hear you. Oh, okay. Well, oh, now, it's, now it's working. It's working. Yeah. Um, well, earlier you were talking about how you disagreed with these charter cities or these ideas of charter cities because of the idea that they're ghettos. But if we look at Sweden and Germany, these kind of cities have already been created because they live in these kind of ghetto areas outside of the main area, outside of urban areas, and they uh, basically keep their own culture, language, and religion and aren't integrated into society at all. And we especially see that in the north of Sweden where they live in you know, complete remote places and actually never even really uh, learn how to speak Swedish or meet actual Swedes. And over the last decade, we've had Iraqis and um, now Syrians who come, and huge groups, especially males, um, male youth, so in their teenage years coming in, and basically creating these ghetto areas, as I would call them probably, um, outside of these urban cities. So if we, here in the UK, decided to uh, admit refugees, what would your policy be on uh, assimilating them and integrating them, and would that be funded by the UN or by the government? And, yeah, that would be my question. Okay, and a last question from the gentleman in the back. Hold your hand up so she can bring you the mic. Yeah. So thank you for your presentation, first of all. My question is two-pronged. On the one hand, I wanted to get your thoughts on the Supporting Syria conference just last week in London. The goal was to have about uh, $10 billion in pledges for uh, the region, uh, and that was, that was reached. Uh, the UK had about $2 billion themselves. <laughs> but my question is that most of these funds were for neighboring countries like, like Lebanon, uh, Jordan, to be better capable of receiving the saturation of refugees and services that they already have. So it's almost like a fund to kind of keep the problem at bay and in the Middle East. And most of this money is actually loans and not grants that the government already can't support. They already couldn't support salaries before uh, the influx of school-aged children. So I wanted to know if you were satisfied with that approach to the Supporting Sierra Conference, even though the international community's impression was very positive. 
um, about it. But on the other hand, um, much of the talks revolve around the UN Resolution 2254, which talks about every solution, every end outcome being about Syrian-led, Syrian-owned solutions. But we've seen in the Supporting Sierra Conference very limited Syrian voices, um, international diplomacy, Syrians in order to be seen, whether it's teachers, civil society, women, are you satisfied with the amount of Syrian involvement in their solutions to their own conflict? Um, on the first questions on the, on, on the figures, um, uh, yes, the figures are a contested um, uh, uh, area. Um, I don't have an answer on how many because we actually don't know how many people, um, if at the start of the conflict um, you had told anyone that four years on, uh, nearly five million uh, uh, people uh, would, have, would be refugees in, in that period. They, I don't think they would have believed you. Um, so I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's, I think it's very difficult to say categorically these are how many people we're going to take. Um, having said that, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to, to jump to your very last question um, to, to try and tie this up. Um, we have to have solutions which are more joined up. Now, the reality is that there is an attempt, of course, to keep the problem at bay, which is what all of that support for neighboring countries is about. But if you, if you talk to Syrians, they want to be in the neighborhood because they're hoping that the conflict is going to stop and they can go home. The, the, the re, and it's not just the Syrian conflict. In every single conflict, refugees tend to not go very far initially. And the reason being is that they want to go, they want to, to be to be able to go home as soon as possible. That's, that's the expectation that people have. And part of the reason that we are seeing you know, a much greater flow now, in my view, into the European Union is because people have now, it's, it's, it's four years on, it's actually got worse, not any better. They can't see any prospect of, of return. Therefore, they're beginning to think about where can we make a life for ourselves and a secure future. And you know, looking at the numbers of people who are in neighboring countries, you start to move further uh, 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 afield. Um, so I th that's why I think it's, it, it's very hard to put, put numbers on it, but we, we have to have a joined up strategy which supports, you do have to support the neighboring countries. Um, but I think that does not mean that you get away from the responsibilities that, that we have uh, further uh, afield. Um, and in terms of, of you know, the, the other part of, of the, the, the Syria conference and, and, and the, 10, uh, the 10 billion, um, so about half the money, I think, uh, is for, for the humanitarian response. And one of the things that they did was to say, just be very clear, is the money going into education? Is it going into health? Is it going into uh, uh, food? Uh, so in that respect, I think um, it was much clearer and much uh, better. Um, there, uh, there was an element, particularly in relation to, to Jordan, of encouraging uh, Jordan to give work permits uh, to people who are uh, refugees. I mean, this whole issue of who is able to to work, people able to work and becoming uh, independent is absolutely 
uh, uh, crucial. Um, but I do think that uh, the burden on countries with, you know, more loans, you know, their economy is already uh, shot to pieces uh, in the case of uh, Lebanon and uh, Jordan. It's very much a short-term uh, solution. Last week was very much a short-term solution, and what we have to look for is something that's much more um, longer-term. Um, coming to uh, the question about, you know, the charter, um, the charter uh, cities, um, you know, we need to be uh, we need to be creating countries and com communities which are plural, uh, which are uh, which are which are diverse. Um, I don't think it's about the UN doing this. Um, of course, the UN has uh, responsibilities. The UNHCR, the, the UN refugee agencies, has some very clear responsibilities in terms of uh, ensuring that uh, uh, the way that, that, that people are moved um, and what they are offered, that all of that is in line uh, with the refugee uh, convention. But it has to be a community and national effort um, in terms of uh, then supporting and uh, helping to create uh, that diversity and that uh, plurality. Um, and on this question of um, assimilation, my view is that the, the, the best way to deal with this is for people to be able to retain um, you know, a strong rootedness in uh, their, their culture, um, but to be able to feel welcomed in the society uh, to which... Uh, they have come. And, you know, one of the reasons that I think that I have been able to succeed, yes, I came here as a child, but that I have been able to be confident in uh, uh, the UK is because I, I feel very strongly uh, rooted in uh, Guyana, the country in which uh, I was born. I feel uh, uh, strongly British. I also feel that I have strong uh, African roots because of uh, my history. So that rootedness, uh, I don't think we need, we shouldn't be taking that rootedness away uh, from people. Um, you know, culture, customs are all very, very uh, important indeed. Um, and finally, on this question about uh, Syrian-led, uh, Syrian-owned, yes, of course it's important, but I think we also have to recognize, you know, it's up to a point as well. Um, uh, You've seen what, what's happened with uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, you know, trying to encourage the Syrian opposition you know, to get together, uh, to come out with you know, a set of recommendations, speaking uh, with one voice in relation to that. I feel passionately that, that you know, more Syrian women need to be a part of uh, the discussion, the formal as well as the informal uh, discussions. I do think that uh, if you don't have a Syrian-led solution... Um, it won't work, but I think we also have to recognize that there's, there's a sort of proxy war going on in Syria as well. So um, those Syrian voices, that Syrian leadership has got to be supported uh, from, uh, in a positive way by those proxy voices. Okay, thanks. I'm going to take a last round of questions, I'm afraid. I apologize that we're getting to the end. Gentlemen in the balcony there in the suit just next to you. Hi, um, you've touched on. Sorry, should I talk? Could you put your hand up? I can't see. Oh, yeah, found you. Yeah, so you've touched on um, the sort of swing in public opinion in Sweden and Germany, who've been very sort of positive about this whole refugee crisis and very proactive. 
Um, back home in England, obviously that's going to change a lot of people's opinions and sort of fortify people's agoraphobia, I guess you'd say, about whether we should be letting anyone in at all. Because obviously if they're going to be coming here and in their, in their lexicon, if they're going to come here and sexually assault, sexually assault our women, why would we ever let them in? So how do you feel that domestically we can combat these sort of um, ideas and what we should be doing to sort of educate people as to the fact that these are a very small minority? Okay. The blonde woman just in front of you there. Thank you. Hi. You mentioned um, the work of SOAS students with the detention centre uh, here in the UK. Um, I was just wondering, going back to accountability again, if you see any uh, accountability to the UK government from outside the UK on the conditions that people are being kept in and the lack of, um, lack of per, um, maximum detention period that we have here. Okay, and the gentleman in the front row. I'd be very grateful if you could comment on the leadership needed at the national and at the local level. Uh, what could a chancellor say to improve the availability of social housing in the UK in ways that would encourage local authorities to make better provision for refugees? Um, how do we combat, um, how do we combat uh, the ideas, um, educate people? Well, we never, we never talk about the numbers in the first place. Um, you know, we, we never talk about the fact that the, of the huge burden that neighboring countries uh, are under. Um, and you know, the fact that if you look globally at the numbers of uh, uh, the percentage immigration into, for example, the European Union, I think uh, the figure is something like 13%. Um, I'm trying to remember it off uh, the top of uh, my head. It's, it's, it's tiny. If you did a vox pop amongst uh, uh, the public, they would say that you know, probably 30% of, uh, uh, of people come to our countries. When have you ever seen these figures challenged? Um, and this is what I mean when I talk about, you know, the nature of, of the political leadership and being brave enough to have the conversation, being brave enough when you go and you knock uh, on people's doors. And indeed, you know, I, I did this uh, uh, many times uh, before I, uh, I left the UK. You have to be able to engage with people's fears and their concerns. Um, it doesn't mean that... Uh, uh, you're going to change their mind uh, immediately. But you can't run away from the reality of, and in some cases, justifiable concerns that people have. You can't just, you know, bundle up those concerns and say that people are, you know, being uh, racist or narrowly nationalist or, or, or whatever, when we haven't actually helped people uh, to, to understand what's going on. And also when people are, you know, losing their work, they're seeing that they're, uh, uh, children aren't uh, being able to afford to, to buy uh, houses and live in uh, the places that uh, they want to live in. And so in a way, it's, a, it's similar to the question that I answered uh, before about what you do in, in communities that see the arrival of huge numbers of refugees. You have to look after the people who are in country, 
as well as look after uh, the refugees uh, or migrants that uh, come in. Um, uh, in terms of um, account, you know, UK government accountability for what's happening in uh, detention centres, of course you have some very strong human rights, uh, international human rights advocates who, who um, raise these issues all the time. Um, we've got the you know, European Court um, uh, of uh, Justice. Um, this is also um, an issue that is uh, taken up uh, through international uh, humanitarian law. So I think there are people who are uh, raising their voices very powerfully um, around this. And on the issue of, of social housing, again, um, uh, particularly in, in, in London, the issue of, of social housing is uh, uh, one which is extremely important. I mean, you know, just about everybody is being priced out of uh, the housing market uh, in London. Uh, we, we absolutely need to have better provision. We need to have better local uh, provision uh, for people within those communities as well as people who are coming into those communities. And it is a matter of what we do through the support uh, to local government from uh, national, bu uh, national uh, government uh, through the budget. Okay. Valerie, you've been extraordinarily generous in taking all these questions and giving us so much of your time. It's only 15. So. I was trying to beat... What did you say the record was, Eric? Somebody took 29 questions? 29 questions, yeah. I only took 15. <laughs> you know how on? competitive I am. I, we're willing 15. to extend this by an hour, Valerie. <laughs> you offered me dinner. so You I'm have been generous. We are going to give you dinner, and sadly, we're not going to take any more questions. Uh, but uh, Eric Bergloff will give us no, I, I just, word. I didn't want to intervene earlier because I thought it was Craig's show, but I just want to, to, to thank you and... I think it was such a beautiful illustration of what the Institute uh, of Global Affairs is about. And, and this was Craig's idea. Uh, and I think the discussion has showed what, what it can achieve. It's, it's taking a very important topic, probably the topic that's on the very top of the agenda in Europe and, and arguably globally. And uh, it's an area where the distance between research and the public discussion is probably greater than in any other policy area. And I think the range of questions here and it also shows that there's no single discipline that can, can come up with the solutions. And, and, and that is, I think, uh, very much what, what uh, IDA, or Institute of Global Affairs, is about. And it also shows that if you're going to teach, I mean, we have a, a master, so maybe even more than one master in, in migration, LSE has much more to offer than just you know, one narrow discipline. We have many people, more than, more than 45 people actually, in faculty working on migration, and, and that's what we want to try to bring together. And you know, we also realize that we cannot cover everything, and so we reached out, we created an, an, an alliance of universities on migration, and we have reached out to SOAS, and, and Valerie and I have been talking about what we could do uh, together. And, so, again, thank you very much, Craig. Thank you, Valerie, for the wonderful...